just like this is so surreal mm. why none of this makes sense but it's just what the owner likes so i really like that idea and wanted to kind of do something similar here where it's kind of just what i love but hopefully in enough ways that people want to come here hello everyone and welcome back to breaking bread aye aye Carl, how you doing, mate? Yeah, buzzing. How you doing, bud? Good, good, good. Glad to be back in the flow of things. I'm glad that Rob got so many listens. And if you haven't gone and listened to that, please go and listen. Rob Palmer, that was our last episode. Uh, this is another really, really long episode. Great episode, but again, very long. So I'm going to make this intro short. Yeah, this just means people get to listen to us more. That's good. People <laughs> want to hear us. They want to know what we think. We're good. just giving the people what they want. Is yeah, that what you're yeah, telling yeah. me? More me and you. That's it. I feel like it'd be criminal not to mention somewhere we've eaten. Oh, yeah. Quick mention. Oh, One of the best places I think I've ever eaten. We got to go to Grace and Saver, Hampton Manor. Now, I'm sure most people that listen to this podcast are aware of Grace and Saver and Hampton just Manor. the whole place yeah. and what's going on there. But, I mean, fuck me, it's good. It's so good. It's unlike anything I've experienced in this country before. Well, I say that. It's not like anything I've ever experienced. I imagine if you go to some of the Scandi countries. Yeah, this might be more common. might be a similar experience, but there's nothing like it, especially in the Not in the Midlands, Birmingham anyway. There. Certainly yeah. not in the Midlands area. Like, the place is beautiful. As you walk in, there's fires roaring. And oh, it's stunning. It's exactly how I design. wish my house looked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I just could move in. I could move in tomorrow. Like, I could just live in the restaurant. It's that nice inside. I was thinking afterwards how would I describe the food and stuff. I was thinking, like, like mega complex complicated techniques but really fucking amazing flavors like, yeah, yeah. you know simple well-loved flavors we come from a three michelin star restaurant in norway and you can really tell you can tell like the food's so pretty like you can go on our insta and see pictures of the food it's just there's nothing in that menu we, we could probably do the same at home <laughs> you know what i mean you know what it's, it's fairly new still so I can imagine in two years you're not going to be able to get a table there. It'll be booked up. Like, it'll eventually be one of them places you just cannot get into because it's that good. Mate, it's the start of something special for that place. But yeah, it definitely it. felt like we were starting something special there, watching mm. something like a real, real talent at work. Like David's done so much for that restaurant and he's, yeah. the level of skill he's got and the, the taste of the food. Just walking around the gardens as well, and seeing the gardens, and then you're eating the food that's come. From, so some of the food that's come from the garden. It's just the whole experience, mind blowing, mind blowing. Yeah, that's what it is. It, that's you know what? It's not going out for dinner. It's going out for an experience. That's yeah. what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we only did yeah. the dinner. We didn't stop over because, frankly, it's twenty minutes down the road for us. So. <laughs> well, I still would, you know. Like, yeah, I'm still you know, tempted for like up. special occasion or something. I definitely yeah, would. Yeah, yeah. Mate, I'd, I'd do it just to eat the breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Like I haven't had that, so... But yeah, some of the food there was... Well, not all the food, but some of it was stand out. Just unbelievable. Of a class that I'm not used to eating at, and I'm used to eating at high-class food. Yeah, as I said, this is really, really long, so we better... Yeah, we <laughs> we're going to end up doing a whole podcast about It's really long again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so on today's episode, 
today's episode is one we've been wanting to do for like ages. I mean, I asked Sam, it's obviously with Sam Bolton. Uh, Pineapple Club and owner, entrepreneur, the genius. Now. Yes. Sorry, I spoke a while over then. Pineapple right. Club and <laughs> Shibuya. But it's a great concept. We got to record in the bar and it's such a cool little funky place. And oh, mate, it's brilliant. We Absolutely haven't had the chance brilliant. to go there and drink it, but it's, it's on the cards to go. I think the best compliment you paid it was it felt like somewhere in Japan. Yeah, I've been there and it, well, I know I bang on about it all the time, so everyone knows I've been there now. But yeah, it felt like if you just closed your eyes and opened them again, you'd be like, if someone just dropped you in that bar and you didn't know where you were, and you would have presumed you were somewhere in Tokyo. Mm. Like it was that sort of special vibe and yeah that's the best but it's just a talent he's so talented isn't he like was he um, an actual sucky sommelier or something? yeah, he's done yeah. The one of just a few in the country yeah ridiculous man so focused driven just nice story we hear all about how we got into it and how we got to this point and all about Pineapple Club and Shibuya it's just yeah really really great yeah massive thank you to Sam for giving us his time thank you all for listening and if you do enjoy this episode please like rate review do all that stuff it really helps the podcast we're on a mission to tell everyone that birmingham isn't shit it's it's just brilliant so please come to birmingham so if you want to join that mission help us spread the word and we will love you forever yeah i'll do anyway (laughs) this episode sam bolton Sam, welcome to the show. How Hello, you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're at the awesome new bar, Shibuya Underground. Fucking cool place, man. Thank you. Mm, Must be happy thing. with it. Yeah, so it's like, like I was saying to you guys before, the listener won't know, but it's been it's been in the makings for it well, actually, I was about to say November twenty twenties when we first had the idea, but that that's a lie. I think if we go back to I think it was November or October twenty eighteen is when I initially had the idea for something like this. And then it was called the Shibuya Skyline, and I was actually putting a proposal to have a cocktail bar above Digbeth Dining Club at the time when it was in um, where Mamaru is now. There's lots of offices and other areas around there, and I was mm. putting in a similar-ish concept there. It was going to be a lot more lively and you know, not a uh, tasting menu. It was going to be like a la carte kind of stuff. So um, that was looking back then, and that idea has just been sat with me for years and years and years waiting for the right place obviously i had the vanguard and had i have been to japan and fully got into the culture as much as i have now then the vanguard would have been a japanese bar absolutely yeah. um but i think i'd already laid out the foundations of what that was going to be started the marketing and then i went to japan just before it opened because i was like oh this will be the last time i get to have a big holiday and then so yeah this has been sat with us for yeah years the concept so for those who don't know, by the way, it's a uh, a ten seater, six course tasting menu cocktail bar. So six courses of either sake or cocktails. So it's going to be strictly booking. You can't just rock up. Yeah. Just 10 so people. because of the way it's built, you know, it's the same as like a fine dining restaurant. You can't just turn up and have a tasting menu, really, because yeah. there's prep involved. There's you know mise en place. There's making. There's orders. You know everything we use is through specialist supplies. So I can't just nip to a local wholesaler and pick up, you know, <laughs> bespoke sake that we've had imported and whatnot. So um, 
whilst we're working with very good importers and stuff like that, there is a you know an, an element of logistics involved that's much higher for this concept than it would be for you know just a normal bar. So the booking zoning that's just so we can make sure that we have enough product because like I said, some of our product is hard to source. Some of the suppliers we're using they don't bring tons of it in. So if we just one week sold ten times the volume versus a normal week, which would be a lot, but it meant that we'd probably struggle to source and whatnot. So we've decided that bookings only means we can monitor what it is. And then if we see bookings arising, we can speak to our suppliers. They can work on bringing in more and so on. Whereas if the volume was unpredictable, which to an extent it still is with bookings, but um, it just helps us monitor what we're doing a bit better. And also means being tasting menu only. If you're a group of eight lads after the football, one of you likes Japan <laughs> and you're like, let's go to that new Japanese bar and you turn up and I'm like, awesome. Forty pounds a head, six courses. You need to be fairly quiet because it's an intimate venue. They're not going to fully understand the concept. They may have just heard that we're a Japanese bar, and that could be the only reason that they're coming. They yeah. may not come for the rest of the experience. It could just be that one little thing, or same for the sake. They could just hear that it's a sake bar, and one of them likes it because you went to Japan once or had some at a sushi restaurant. Yeah. So, to to kind of manage expectations, really, the idea is you have to know who we are. You have to book. You have to because when you book, we also ask you which menu would you like? Would you like cocktails or sake? So you'll have had to view the menus, make a decision, and then have booked to kind of make sure. So when people arrive, then their expectations are managed for what they were expecting to get, rather than it being a, a letdown. Yeah. Why should be you? Um. So full name should be your underground. Um, although the, the kanji on the logo does say Shibuya because it turns out the kanji for Shibuya Underground was incredibly long and very un, <laughs> unpleasing to the eye. So Shibuya itself is an area. Yeah. In Japan, it was... Um, it's probably the one place... There's two places in Japan that I really kind of like was like, oh, wow. One was Shibuya and the other one was Akihabara. Akihabara is the place where they have all the arcades. Yeah, it's super bright lights, music, you know, flashing stuff everywhere. That's the kind of Tokyo that most people imagine. Yeah. Shibuya is also similar to that, still loud, bright lights and whatnot. Um, but it's more of the, um, it's like the, the the modern part, the modern main part of it. So, you know, when you see the countdown on New Year's Eve in, you know, London, Times Square, Paris, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Tokyo one you see is Shibuya. Uh, most people know it because it's got a the, the biggest crossing in the world from um, the film Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation. Yeah. That's the one. Um, so that's the reason most people know. But when I, I the reason kind of there's two reasons sticks in my head is one I spent New Year's Eve there, absolutely awesome. You know, hundreds of thousands of people probably. I don't know the full number, but there's tons of people everywhere. Place was rammed. Absolutely amazing experience. Looking back, pre-COVID, I'd never go there now. <laughs> but yeah. Um, whereas the other, the, re the main reason was, so when I actually went to Japan, uh, I was with my ex-partner at the time. We'd just arrived in uh, in Japan. I'd booked um, somewhere in Shibuya because I'd done my research on different areas and we were going to stay in different parts of Japan um, over the time we were there. And obviously we started in Tokyo. So I'd booked Shibuya somewhere just around the corner from the crossing. I was like, oh, that'd be really cool. I wanted to go see the crossing. And um, got there, bearing in mind at this point, I was very inexperienced in, you know, the Japanese culture and what it was. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Like, we got there. It's like, we got there at midday. I was like, brilliant. Let's go check into the um, the the Airbnb or what it was, I think. 
Um, we got there. She was like, look, I'm really tired. Can I have a nap? And I was like, all right, fine. Let's, you know, we've both been traveling for 24 hours. We're knackered anyway. It's like, yeah, actually, let's let's have a couple hours kip. We'll get out for the for the evening and spend the rest of the Absolutely slept for like 17 hours. And we woke up at like <laughs> 4 a.m. or something. Yeah. Um, 4 or 5 a.m. And I was like, we got up and I was like, oh, crap. Like, we've just lost a whole night on the, the holiday. I was like, all right, let, let's go out now. So we both got ready, went out. And we were like, oh, do you know what? We're in... We're in the busiest area, the busiest concentration of people, that all this. I was like, oh, this would be great. You know, Japan, the city that never sleeps. Turns out Japan does sleep. <laughs> and, and they sleep a lot. And we got to Shibuya, the busiest, most like, part of, of the whole country. And there was no one there. <laughs> Not a soul. Like you see all these time lapses and, you know, B-roll of thousands of people crossing the road. And we got there and there wasn't a soul in sight anywhere to be seen <laughs> we ended up finding a 24-hour mcdonald's around the corner because it's the only place that was open that and a 24-hour kfc uh which confused me but japan um <laughs> so we went to to the mcdonald's had some food and had to just wait for the places to wake up like to liven up and you know we were sat there just googling what we we're going to do that day and whatnot and um so yeah so it's always had that kind of like that just distinct memory of me literally sat with my ex-partner on the crossing in the middle, just looking around going, this is meant to be the, one of the busiest places in the world. <laughs> and there's not a soul. It was just really surreal. So it kind of, that idea has always stuck with me. Um, we then went back, you know, in a busy period and had a look and, um, you know, as, as you do. Um, and then, yeah, later then spent New Year's Eve there. So it's just kind of a place that had a lot of interest to me in Japan. It was that. And there was a couple of others. Plus, it's fairly easy to say. It's phonetic. A lot of Japanese words are hard to pronounce or you have to guess. And so I thought... Shibuya, at least it's phonetic. So if you yeah. really butcher the pronunciation, you still kind of get it. Nearly there, yeah. Yeah. So that and then underground, hence we're underground. Yeah. What was it about Japanese culture that inspired you to do this? Um, I think there was two things about it, really. It was the the constant surprise. So it was the first time for me that I went to, um, when I went there, it was the first time I went to Asia. So I think, you know, the huge culture shock Initially, I was kind of like not worried for, but not excited for. Now, after being like, I've actively tried to go to those anywhere that has a hugely different culture because you just appreciate so much more. And for me, there was that culture shock that was so interesting. Like, why things develop the way they did? Why do they have square cars versus rounded cars like we have? Why do they have, you know, premium fruit, which is what one of our drinks on the the menus. Um, themed around is that whole concept of premium gifting fruit that they have and you know why why was it closed off i'm big into history so i was like why was it closed off from the world for so long i mean as a kid i you know i always liked like samurai jack and dragon ball z so i had a affinity for that side of japan that i didn't really understand fully appreciate with japanese until i grew up a bit so there's that and then there was also the kyoto side the very like tranquil like i think the lives we live here are so busy and hectic like you know I've been here for 14 hours today and after this I've got stuff to do and that's just life here. You know, there's no, like, I'm not any special to anyone else. I'm not any busier than anyone else. Um, whereas there, you know, they actively take time out to spend an hour or two having tea. Mm. And it's just like, imagine if I said to you, do you want to come have a cup of tea for two hours and not really do much? You'd be like, I can't fit that in my time. Like, <laughs> nah. Like, Blade, so there was that. PlayStation there, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> But like there was that kind of, you know, um, there was those two sides of it that like really weird, wacky, like, because not only did I like just see, oh, look, they have square watermelons. It's like, well, well, why? Why is that a thing? And 
it's quite easy to find the answer when you start Googling. And that's what really interested me was just there was so much of the question of why. Why is this a thing? And there was always an answer to be found and it was always fairly weird and interesting. And then there was that kind of tranquil side that really roped me in. And that's something that I really want to bring to an, to an ascent to Shibuya. Um, I remember being sat there in one of the izakayas, which is their version of a pub. And it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. I was sat at the bar everywhere around me every part of the wall was plastered in a note that someone had wrote to the owner you know thank you for our stay really enjoyed it and then if it wasn't a note there was vintage coca-cola um just stuff whether it was like just branded stuff that they bought because the owner clearly had a love for that and then there was you know we were sat there listening to the imperial march like the the instrumental version of the of the entire star wars soundtrack so the imperial march on i was eating a traditional pub snack which is raw horse meat and i was just like this is so surreal mm. why none of this makes sense but it's just what the owner likes so i really like that idea and wanted to kind of do something similar here where it's kind of just what i love but hopefully in enough ways that people will want to come here you're going to shout at everyone when they walk in no i don't know <laughs> i think people there's always that's the thing where you go in anywhere and they shout at you as soon as you walk through the door don't they? yeah it doesn't matter where you it's are it's a compliment it's a nice thing they're not like get out of my shop <laughs> like i think it doesn't matter where you are as well in um the world where there's always this view of japan and that's one thing that we've realized here is trying to cross is we've got to not only show off what japan really is but also give the experience that people expect. And I think people do expect like that kind of tranquil, quiet kind of side of it. Whereas if we went really into it and did some really weird shit, it might put people off. So I think there's somewhat of a, an expectation that we have to hit by being a Japanese bar that the Western world thinks of a Japanese bar, but then also have to, I want to introduce the weirder stuff as we go. But no horse meat while you're having your cocktails. No, I can't find a supplier. I'll have to go. <laughs> Maybe Tesco. <laughs> How does the taste of menu menu work? So, have you got like a set time with your table, with your chair, and then you take your six and yeah. So each course is we're expecting it to be about two hours. I think yeah. some people, depending on how fast you drink, realistically, you could probably do it in an hour and a half. I had we've had a trial night, and the guy was done within an hour. Yeah. You just give him a drink, and he chinned it. He didn't ask any questions. He was just enjoying <laughs> his time quietly on his own, chinned all his drinks, and he's a friend of mine and. You know, he had some great feedback after, but during the sitting, he just had his drinks. Like we're talking one drink that would take most people 20, 30 minutes. Took him about four because he just chinned it and went, that was nice. Moves on. <laughs> um, so I think the average person, it will take them about an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, and throughout that, each drink is themed on a different concept or philosophy or theory or just something interesting that we found about Japan. It doesn't have any real structure in that way like some people assumed it was going to be based on japanese flavors mm -hmm. and whilst we have two drinks which are based around a flavor of japan and something that we really like there are drinks that have nothing to do with the flavor necessarily it's more about a philosophy or something historical or you know cultural um does that help when you're coming up with a menu? You've got something to aim the drink at rather than just trying to come up with six drinks randomly. yeah absolutely i think um a lot of, like, I I am more creative when there's more restrictions because you have to do more research. Whereas if, I, if you just said make 10 drinks, yeah, I'll probably hard. end up doing, <laughs> well, I'll probably end up taking risks on stuff I've done before because I'm like, oh, well, I've got no restrictions. I can, that drink was nice. I'll just do that, but make some adaptions or 
put some coconut in that drink that I've already done. Whereas when you put restrictions on and say, no, no, it needs to be themed around this, this, this. So what we did is we all sat down and said, what, what is it about Japan that we find interesting? And that's where we started is what do we find interesting? Because if we find it interesting, hopefully other people will too. Mm. Um, and if they don't, we change that. Hopefully they just enjoy the drink, you know? Um, so we've took, you know, five or six different concepts that we liked and then we expanded on it. So, you know, one of them was tea and it's all based around what people, that's obviously quite easy because, well, tea in a drink, it's quite easy to do. So it was finding the right tea. Why are we using that tea? Where did that tea come from? Do you go with the obvious one of matcha and green mm. tea or do you look further and do something more interesting? And we went, we ended up using matcha somewhere else. So we were like, right, for the tea drink, we'll mention matcha, but actually we're going to look at, you know, the other types of tea that people necessarily don't know about or hear about or don't make it over here kind mm. of thing. Um, and then some of them had initially not really anything to do with the flavor. You know, it could be, you know, a political point that or an ideology that they have and it doesn't necessarily have a flavor so it's more of a it's more of an artist's link to try and get that to to match and it's more about you know it could be a philosophy about them being tranquil and clean and calm and we make a drink that we think reflects that but it doesn't necessarily have a distinct flavor from the initial idea yeah um so yeah that's kind of how we went about it is ideas and concepts first and then develop a drink after so that they make sure that way i think the drinks always fit what we're doing whereas if you do it the other way around, there can be a bit of a... Sometimes you've got a drink, you've got no idea. It could be an amazing drink, but if it doesn't fit the whole theme of what you're going for. It's like if it was on a tasting menu and it just didn't fit the theme of what they were going for as a restaurant, it kind of sometimes doesn't feel right. That's the cocktail tasting menu. You know, you got... Is it just sake? Yeah, so I'm a trained sake professional. Um, there's lots of different titles you can call someone that's trained in sake you call how do you get that do you just go to some do you have to go um, to japan and get it all no you can do um but it kind of works similar to being a sommelier like there's two ways of being a sommelier you can just have worked in one for a very long time and have the professional title of one or you can go through a kind of um formal qualification you know is such it, as the WSCT. yeah so wsct is the big one um that's the course that they also do a sake one mm. similar to the sake sommelier course which i did so they do a level three, which is similar to the wine one, which most sommeliers will have. I did the sake version of that. Um, there are loads of different ones, like, I mean, tons and tons and tons. It doesn't really matter which one you have. Um, WSCT is known as the hardest one in the world, and it is. And the reason, it's not that it's any harder than any of the others. I think the time frame that they give you to do it within is hard. So there's loads of different ones. There is a course called a sake sommelier course, um, but that doesn't necessarily give you any entitlement to the title it's not a protected term mm. so if you work in you know i work with importers and whatnot and they don't have the ssa course to be called a sake sommelier but you would be disingenuous to not call them that title um so i choose sake professional but that's just because sake is good to be kind of associated with wine in that kind of sommelier style um but i think that there's a lot more into it than just you know serving it like a wine there's a history and a heritage and stuff like that which you don't tend to get with sommeliers they're more into the, the physical drinking and understanding of the wine at least that's my view of them is sake more like a wine or a whiskey because <clears throat> um, I, I don't drink so i don't really understand it too much like i'm not really looked into it yeah so definitely more like a wine in that regard so it's brewed like you would a beer or a wine you know you would you would ferment a wine and you would brew a beer they use the term brewing but it's just fermentation um 
it's normally brewed to a low strength um, and then they have the choice to add alcohol in. But I say low strength, but that's it's not um, spirit strength. So sake typically comes out somewhere between 15 and 18-ish percent. You can get a little bit lower, you can get a little bit higher. kind of depends on the producer and what they want to do. Um, so it is typically a higher strength than you would get a normal wine, but it's nowhere near the strength. There's no distillation that goes into it to be uh, to be something more like a whiskey. You don't drink the same volume as you would drink wine anyway. You drink normally. way more. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I think that there's a Western idea of like you have it as shots because they give mm. you that little vase, you know, the little what would you call it, a tokuri, uh, and a, and a little chocker, which is the cup, and you you it's a little shot glass is what we view it as when actually um, that came from the idea of. You would, it's, it's rude in Japan to allow your, the person you're with to top up um, the cup that they're drinking from. So my understanding was that kind of cup came from the idea the smaller the cup, the more you would top it up for them, therefore the more polite you were being. So you would have two little cups and a, and a, and a, a vase of sake. I don't know why I keep saying bars rather than jug, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so you would top it off, and but I think here this you see a shot glass of your chin it. Whereas the typical serving measure is 180 mil, so that's five mils more than a medium glass of wine. That's the typical serving size, mm. and the typical bottle size is 180 mil. So I can show you one here actually. Not that it's at all useful for a for a podcast, <laughs> um, but for those not here, there's a huge bottle in my hands. Um, yeah. So that's a typical serving vessel. So. For those who can't see on the podcast, it's a hundred. It's a one point eight liter. Um, yeah, it looks like you've bottle. just won like an F one race. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it looks like a big champagne bottle. Not far bottle. off a magnum. Yeah, like um, I don't mean the ice cream. Anyway. And that that's a typical serving size. Obviously, they do get smaller and larger bottles. Like they have huge bottles that go up and up and up, same as we do with champagne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, they do have those size bottles, and the reason is you know, that that's a hundred. Uh, you know, one point eight liters. But 180 ml is one serving, so that's only 10 servings. So if the three of us were having dinner together, that's only, what, three three glasses each? Mm. So it's not a lot. Um, and they do like to drink, and three glasses of sake, although it's boozier than wine, you know, it, to them, it's a bottle of wine essentially each, and uh, they'll happily drink that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, some people obviously will be very drunk. They, they are known for drinking to excess sometimes. Well, I had um, no idea I was there, and I started having it with my breakfast. In one play, I went to sushi place for breakfast, and I was drinking sake. I was drinking. I, I had no idea the strength. I presumed it was sort of just above beer, mm. like a strong beer type. Yeah. <laughs> and then we were leaving. I was like, I was a bit pissed out. So I had a similar story when I got there. Um, it's the first proper day after we'd been to Shibuya in that morning. We said, right, the first day we're going to go to the Japanese government center, which has a brilliant viewing point for free to go to. Um, so like, we'll go do that. On the way there, we walked through a um, department store and I was like, oh, these are the ones with all the fancy fruit and all that. Let's just go have a look around. And I found some like, and, like loads of different soft drinks. I was like, oh, this one looks yuzu flavored. It looks, looked like there was a lemon on it. I'm going to assume it's yuzu. So I bought that. Um, had a sip when I got home later that day. And I thought, oh, that's delicious. I was like, that's really nice. We've been out all day. I was really thirsty. So I, <laughs> so I pretty much chinned it because I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm really thirsty. And then about five, ten minutes later, I was like, oh, my head's spinning here. And I remember saying to my, my ex, I was like, I think I'm a bit pissed. She was like, what? Like, you've, you haven't had anything to drink all day? Got the can out, and there and behold, it was like 12% yeah. the can. 
And I had no idea drinking it. And I just chinned a can of this 12% stuff in seconds. And uh, so, yeah, deceptive with yeah. the booze sometimes. That's exactly um, what happened to me. I was, I was done by about 10 o'clock in the day and I was just walking <laughs> around. And the missus was like, I can't believe it because we checked the bottle as we were leaving. Because I looked and I was like, shit, 16% I was. Yeah. <laughs> no one feel fucked. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about sake um, in the Western one. I think a lot of that comes from you only really see it on some form of Japanese program, mm. you know, and even then they don't necessarily talk about it. It's just being drank whilst they're doing whatever they're doing. But I think there is a misconception here because whilst we have people who import it into the UK, a lot of those people who import it are Japanese companies, some of which don't have fluent English or it's not, they're not set up to sell to English people. They're set up to sell to other Japanese people. And that is one of the key kind of, struggles that i find with some of the companies there are some great ones out there um who obviously basically make it more understandable but i think when you have that um disconnect between the people who are buying and the people who are selling there's always uh, it's always going to be a struggle to then get that to the consumer you know just because you work in a japanese restaurant and you're japanese it also doesn't mean that you're going to know what you need to know to write a menu on sake so i have been to you know japanese restaurants and i read the menus and it's like i can't discern what I'm going to drink here because it's like having a wine menu and them not mentioning the grapes. They just tell you the brand of the wine and it's like, that doesn't, that doesn't tell me anything. That's presuming every English person would know loads about ale or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, like to an extent, (laughs) like Carlin only produced one, so that's fine. But, you know, if you just had like, you know, local like purity brewery, it's like, oh, which one? Like, it's the exact same thing. And so, so sometimes there's a disconnect between what the producers give them and then what they put on the menu. And then there's a disconnect sometimes where if it's all in Japanese, how does a, you know, a British English owned kind of English speaking company then buy from them? Because most of it's in purely in, in Japanese. Now, whilst I can read some Japanese, well, I mean some you know, very specific kanjis, I can read to discern what's on a sake bottle. I can't read fancy fonts. You know, I struggle. You know, I'm not Japanese, so I can't. Even Japanese people struggle with fonts, same as English people struggle with some fonts. So yeah, like the company that we work with or of of the few companies that we work with, we specifically work and choose places that provide English descriptions for what it is so that I as a a person writing the menu can discern what we're picking, you know, acidity levels, mineral levels and all sorts, sweetness levels. I can figure out what rice is it from because that makes a difference, same as grape does in, in wine. Um, and then, yeah, all the information is there. So we specifically work with people that provide the information that, that we need to then pass that on to the consumer. Otherwise, there's a lot of, oh, I think it's this. I think it's that. And, you know, whilst that's, you know, there's always an educated guess, I want to be able to provide the consumer here with the knowledge they're going to need to potentially either buy somewhere else or just know what they're drinking. Do you ever get any information about the companies that make it or the families or... To an extent, yeah. yeah. So it depends really on how much we want to deep. So one of the producers we work with called um, Tengu Saki, for the, if anyone wants to have a look at them, really great company, very small. And their whole concept is they'll go to Japan, find the, the right people to work with, choose the right sakis from them and make sure that what they're basically bringing over here fits their kind of idea of, is it a good person? Is it a good company? Is it a good product? All the way through. So we use a lot of their stuff because... It's been vetted through them. So, you know, I work quite heavily with them to make sure that the people we pick and the stuff we use, 
that information gets to the customer, but without going through the supplier, I'd have to go onto a website that's all in Japanese and translate it to kind of get marketing spiel. Yeah. This might be like daft, but like how different can sake be? Like, can you get like no, completely different flavors of it? And Yeah, so the way I would say that is if you just picked a sake at random, no idea what you were having, but imagine in the beer term, say you'd never had a beer before, mm-hmm. you picked one at random, and that one that you picked was Guinness. That's the only beer you'd ever had. And you picked a Guinness up, drank it, and gone, all right, that must be like all beer. Mm. That's the same in the sake world, really. To, whilst there is a large portion of sake which is somewhat similar, like which is what you typically would call futsushu, which is basically table sake. Now, to me, yes, there's differences in all of them. To the untrained palate who only has one every year and a half when they go to a Japanese restaurant, yes, they do taste the same. Um, but then there's different types of sake. So, you know, you've got um, namazake, which is unpasteurized. That stuff's going to be um, much more lively, much more bold. And then you've got nigorizake, which is um, like filtered differently. So they have much more sediment in the bottle. It's much more lightly filtered. So they're going to have, you know, it's going to be cloudy for one, but it's also going to have a lot more of the ricey flavor because you've got more physical rice particles left in it. Then you've got like then you've got the sake grades. You've got ginger, daijinjo, honjo, zone, futsushu. Like each one of them has different processes to be made, and then the outcome is going to be slightly different. So while most sake produced is futsushu, which is table sake, that's the ricey flavored kind of stuff that you get. In 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 tasting terms, you call it more cereal flavored, which is cereal meaning like the grain. And then but then as you get the higher up, you get the more kind of um, floral flavors. So you start getting more like white flour and you know jasmine and like just floralness in general will really come out in those ones so there's a massive variety but 80 percent of the the lower end stuff does taste ricey so if you are just picking random stuff off menus when you go to a sushi restaurant then chances are you aren't going to notice too much difference but the same could be said for white wine if you were to pick if you only have white wine once a year and weren't a white wine drinker and didn't really know anything about grapes and just picked or if you house white at a random restaurant, mm. you're going to think the same about white wine. So you don't just have this place. You, you Before this, you've had Vanguard, and mm-hmm. obviously, well, I don't, we haven't referenced it, but you've got a Pineapple Club as yeah. well. Yeah, I was going to say, we've kind of done this backwards. Normally, we yeah. start at the beginning, but we were that excited about this place. We were <laughs> yeah. like, let's just get into this place. But I know. It's, how did, it? it's so cool. How did you get into hospitality, Sam? Um, it was the first people who would hire me when I was... <laughs> When I was 17, it was my first job. I worked at TJ Friday's on the Hagley Road, which uh, was was my first step in the door. I was collecting glasses and bussing tables. Um, and I got sacked for being a bit of a loudmouth and, and basically not accepting policies and things that I thought was bullshit. Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Yeah. So, there was just dodgy stuff being done not from TJ Fridays as a company they're actually really good and a great uh, employer however some of the people who worked there at the time were dodgy as hell and arseholes so um, I called it out I got sacked pretty much instantly so that was my first foot in the foot in the door of hospitality and then it wasn't until I went to uh, university and I was maybe three weeks at uni barely been there and I was on a date with a girl who I'd recently met and I was like, where the fuck do I take her? I don't even know the city. Where'd you go on a date? And I was like, right. <laughs> so I did what I only think I knew to do. I was like, well, at least I know TJ Fridays is okay. Like, we're students, so it was probably really good to us back then. But I was like, right, at least I know 
there's one in the town and it's not going to be horrendous rather than going somewhere that was going to be, you know, extremely expensive. While we were there, I mentioned that I used to work here. We got really drunk and she just basically told the bartender, oh, he's looking for a job. He's worked in TGI Fridays for years. That was a lie. I'd worked there for like <laughs> four, five, six months maybe at, at, at most. And um, the guy just like, oh, really? Like, do you want a job? We're looking for a bartender. And I was like, oh, I didn't work on the bar. I was just the, the bar back. Like, the, the you know, I just... I just did all the other. And he was like, brilliant, better than nothing. And the next minute he come back and he'd gone off the bar and he come back and he was like, you got an interview tomorrow morning at 9am if you want it. And I was trolled at this point. And obviously, <laughs> obviously knew that I'd been sacked from the company as well for being a loud mouth. So I thought, screw it. I was like, what's going to happen? I turn up and they say, sorry, you've been sacked from me before. And I was like, oh, I'll just turn up anyway. Turned up. Turns out, I didn't know this for years. Turns out the manager had already found my reference, found out I'd been sacked and thought, wow, he just, he just didn't, see it as a problem he was just like i'll make my own decisions rather than someone else's so he yeah. just saw it as a young kid being sat from anyway he's like oh, i'll take a chance so he took a chance on me and i really respect him for that because i did not know at the time i thought i'd been a mastermind and hid this uh, so i had my interview i'd been offered a trial shift obviously because i knew the somewhat of the company before my trial shift went really well because i knew the procedures are all the same worked for them for years actually did horrendous on the bar really badly because i was doing uni <laughs> And I just didn't have the time or effort or energy to like learn the specs and the cocktail. So I did really bad. And then the manager said, look, you're not doing that great. Let's find something easier that fits around uni a bit better for you. So I went on to their door department. So greeting and seating kind of thing. Did really well at that. A couple of years later, ended up winning best in the company for that or best department for that. And admittedly, it was an easy job. You just have to make sure you, you greet, <laughs> greet and see people like, you know, there was more intricacies to it than that. But yeah, it wasn't that hard. So did that, and then he said to him, like, look, you know, you've won best in the department, like, in the company. What do you want to do? Like, there's no point in you being there because there's nothing up. And it's like, I couldn't go into management because I was still at uni. Mm. So he was like, what do you want to learn? Do you want to go in the kitchen? Do you want to wait her? Do you want to whatever? And I was like, I want to go on the bar. And he went, eh. we, tr <laughs> we tried that before, didn't we? And I was like, honestly, give me another go. And again, out of respect for me, he, he said, all right, yeah, fine. Second time round, I took it really seriously and did really well. And then, yeah, I ended up leaving there. Um, Newcastle, where I was living, has a really good independent scene with some really good cocktail bars. Um, dotted around a couple, worked for Canaloa, um, which was a um, franchise version of Mahiki in London, which was one of the biggest tiki bars in the world. So I got trained, luckily. I, at the time, I had no real idea by some of the biggest and best and most knowledgeable bartenders in, in the world, let alone the UK. Right. Um, some of which I still know today and respect and some of have judged me in competitions and some of which I've taught things and you know, long, long way down the line. But at the time, I was just like, cool, we'll learn about rum today. And that was it. And um, the work for them worked for a big company called Tokyo, Tokyo Industries. Um, I believe it's been bought out and owned by different people now, but at the time it was one of Newcastle's like longest standing kind of independent cocktail bars, doing really well. And then eventually dotted around some fine dining restaurants and so on and opened or worked at a place just after they opened called Tiger Hornsby. And that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin of my career in Newcastle because by that point I'd realised I was too far from my family. I wasn't doing as well. Whilst I loved working there and was great, the owner turned around and said, you need to go home. And it was the best best uh, acknowledgement of of struggle that I'd ever someone had ever done. They just said, go home, go see your family, go move city. You're not, you're not in the right place. Um, so I did. I listened to them and I moved back to Birmingham. What did then... you study at uni? <laughs> so I did um, contemporary dance and ballet is my degree, um, which I know looking at me, you would fully believe 
because of the slim and slender physique <laughs> listener. But yeah, no, I, I, I danced and performed as a kid. I, we, in my school, it was primary school. Like, it was really hard because looking back, it was really hard, but it, it was very, they were very ahead of their times. All the boys did ballet and all the girls did football. There was no gender difference. It was just, this is your class and you all do the same thing. Um, there was no segregating of anything like that. And it wasn't until secondary school I realised that that wasn't normal at the mm. time. Um, but I was good at it, carried on. It was the only thing I really took to. Like, um, I'm quite heavily dyslexic. like So I've always struggled academically. Um, and I have to focus a lot more on anything academic than, than not. So I just took to it. I was good at it and thought, well, if I'm ever going to get a degree, it needs to be something non-academic. And this will do. Um, turns out when you do a dance degree, you are completely graded on the academic side of it. <laughs> so I still only ended up with a 2-2. Um, they don't take any of your other abilities. I got into a private ballet schools and stuff like that. And I eventually just at uni realized very quickly it wasn't for me. And I was doing it for the sake of getting a degree. That was the only reason I was there. And I, I didn't know that at the time, really. It took me a while to fully understand that. And that's when I fell into bartending and I was bartending whilst I was doing studies. And then after I finished, I was like, well, I'm never going to go into a career in professional dance. Like I'd, I'd rather die. So I was like, maybe I'll take this bartending thing seriously for a bit whilst I figure out what I want to do. And I took a full-time job pretty much like, two weeks later somewhere. Mm. And then never left. If it wasn't for uni day, you might not have ended up in bar work at all. So nah, almost definitely the, not. the course was a bit useless. Yeah. Um, I think like there's like, definitely like got you where you were going. Yeah, there's definitely like always a consequence to decisions, and I think that whilst at the time I probably had thought, "Oh, this is a waste. I'll just do this bar to anything," but like I said, I probably would never have applied because like I lived in Hales Owen, uh, which is a town just out of Birmingham, and there aren't any bars around there, so I definitely <laughs> wouldn't have. If it had been in a bar, it would have been in a pub, so I definitely wouldn't have been where I am now without it. How big was it going to um, like the more serious independent bars where? There were full-time um, bartenders, cocktail makers, and that was their actual career. It wasn't mm. like they were doing that on the side. That that was their whole... Because, you know, a lot of the time now, bartending's not seen as a proper career, which is yeah. really fucking annoying. So, so um, I think that looking back, actually, it wasn't really... I don't think anyone at the time saw it as their career either. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were working alongside other jobs you know just friday saturdays or alongside uni or the people that were full-time all had visions to do something else and i don't know how many of them are still in the industry now um so i don't think anybody there really in the bar that i worked in at the time was really looking for a career in it either mm. um and me who definitely wasn't looking for a career in it has ended up being one of the ones that is still in it. and i know some of the people there still do it part-time but some are teachers one guy's a policeman. Um, so they've all gone on to different things. But I don't think that... No one at the time viewed it as a career either. Mm. And I think that the people who wanted other careers have ended up having this as their career and so on. It just surprises me, though. I don't know how you can be so good at cocktail making without it being your career. Like, I'm not sure. I know it's hard to be looking at it through, what, 10 years ago? I, I, think, like, I think, though, the thing with <clears throat> cocktail making and stuff like that is it, it's fun. Like, mm. you know, it's like my my brothers are golfers and I don't know if they're any good, but they do it enough to, sh they should be good because mm. they're always out golfing and it's just because they enjoy it. And again, I have no idea if they're crap or not, but like, I think it's the same with cocktail making is because, you know, two shifts in a, in a bar, like could be 
26 hours realistically at mm-hmm. the time. Like we were doing 14 hour shifts and stuff. So you kind of hope that we were somewhat good at it by the end of that. Because mm-hmm. if you had 30 hours a week to do your hobby, you'd hope you were good at it kind of thing. Um, so I think that it's kind of like the long hours and the fact that, in you know, with these, these were high volume cocktail bars. So you were constantly making drinks for at least 10 hours of the 14 hour shift you're on. If you took it seriously, you could end up being quite good at the end of it. And I always, I've always wanted to kind of do better and kind of achieve and get you know make drinks faster or more efficiently. And mm-hmm. I always liked that kind of like pushing and challenging myself because it was more. I think because I'd not achieved it quite a lot of things. Like I said, I struggled academically. My degree hadn't gone as wasn't as good at the degree as I'd hoped it was. So I think it was just always trying to just make yourself feel a little bit better by being like at least I'm good at this. And I ended up being good enough at it to, to get a career out of it but I think it took me a while before I fully said Do you know what this is my career like I can't remember when that came about but I remember when I took when it full time but that was still under the assumption that I was going to find a career so yeah. I don't know when I actually turned around and said yeah I want I really want to do this so when did you break out and go right I want my own place and I'm going to make fucking good cocktails so at this point, I would have been 25. I'd been not out of the industry, but out of making cocktails on a bar daily for about a year and a half. I was working for um, a spirit sales company. So basically what most bartenders do is they work really hard, they burn themselves out, and they go and work for a spirit sales company selling, you know, it's 9-5, still alcohol-related. You still get to deal with bartenders but you get your weekends off and stuff like that. And people have always cherished the concept of getting your weekends off. And I'm the opposite, really. Like, I I have most of my weekends off now, and I, I don't really do anything with them. <laughs> like, if I'm not seeing, you know, the odd friend who doesn't work in the industry, I'm normally at home catching up on sleep from the rest of the week. So I've never really valued the idea of having a weekend off. So I was in sales, and the one thing I realized in sales, so I'd always, I think I left bartending full-time out of frustration that things weren't happening the way I thought they should happen. I thought it maybe it was arrogance, maybe it was, you know, bad management, whatever, but I just really struggled to think like, this could be done better or we could be making more money as a business doing this. And I just always seemed to care more than the people above me. And I don't know if that, again, there was definitely a level of arrogance in, you know, some of the reasons, but I think there was also a lot of times where I had valid points. I just wouldn't be taken seriously because... I'd be so strong on making sure it happens and no one would want to listen because it was extra work or whatever. So I left the industry to go and work in sales. Whilst I loved the company and still to this day buy heavily the products that they use because they were great products, um, they headhunted me. Basically, they saw me perform, um, not perform, but uh, like they saw me on stage doing a cocktail thing um, and the owner come over Honestly, the guy walked over, he had flip-flops on, bearing it's pissing down with rain in Manchester. <laughs> he had flip-flops on, he had a floral shirt, most of the buttons were open. And he just went, you're right, I'm, I'm James. And I was like, you're right, crazy man. Uh, and he was like, I want to offer you a job. And I was like, all right, cool. Have you got a card? We'll go from there. Gave me his card. He was like managing director of this company. And I was like, oh. Looked into the company, realised they're a pretty big deal. He was just very, he's a bit eccentric. Yeah. Um, I thought he was just a crazy man. And then next minute, I don't know, I was getting an email off the commercial director to be like, we want to invite you for an interview. And I was like, whoa, interview, you you offered me the job. Why am I interviewing? Anyway, I did it anyway, got the job. Um, took it one, two days a week. Did really well at it. You know, there was a lot of uh, 
of easy kind of sales to be made in the area because no one had ever worked in this area for them. So there was a lot of low hanging fruit. Worked really well, ended up going up to four days a week and then stayed part time uh, in the bureau. If you guys remember the bureau. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so worked there part time whilst doing sales. Um, and the same thing kind of happened there that happened in Barton. And I had all these ideas. I knew there was extra money to be made, but the company had, you know, its idea of where it wanted to go and what it wanted to sell and why it wanted to get there. And that kind of frustrated me. And I didn't enjoy, you know, I kept trying to find solutions to, there were certain products that, not that I didn't like them, I didn't think they were any good. I just struggled to sell them because sometimes that happens. You know, there was other products where I would sell five, six times over my target consistently because I knew I could sell it because I knew it and I believed in the product. Whereas other products, I, was, I just don't have that passion for it. So I tried to figure solutions and basically they didn't, you know, they had their way of running and they were like, look, we're not changing the company for one person. So I appreciate why they didn't do that way. But then I woke up one morning and I just, I broke down into tears and I was like, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to have, you know, all these meetings. And, you know, there, there are struggles when you work in, in hospitality, when you're working with other bartenders, because one of the key things I've noticed in this industry is there's not many professionals. And I don't mean that in a... Um, in a, in a kind of attack at bartenders to say they're not professional people. There is a lot of very good bartenders. Um, what I mean is no one's ever told me as a bartender or whatever, to, or a bar manager even, to have an email, to use an email, or how to use an email, or correct ways of replying to people on email. It's something that you just pick up naturally if you work in an office. Mm. Um, in this industry, it's just not done, you know. And that's why a lot of the sales people have to be a bit more brash. They have to just turn up. Because, you know, they can email you 10, 15 times and people will just ignore you. And I really struggled with stuff like that because I was like, look, I'm trying to not be the guy that you all hate. I don't want to just turn up. I don't want to sell you something you don't want. But I've looked online. I've seen what you've done. I think we can work together. But you just see me as someone coming in and make money. And obviously, yes, that's the job. But the idea is we hopefully both make money together as we go. So I really struggled with that kind of like just being fobbed off. I once walked into somebody... And he looked me up and down and just went, what do you want? And I was like, oh, I'm looking for a manager. I just want to find out who's best to talk to about, you know, purchasing. And he just went, well, it's me. What do you want? And I was like, I don't want to be here now, <laughs> to be honest with you. And um, I just found that really hard to work with those kind of people because there's always this skepticism. And a lot of people wouldn't understand as well because no one teaches you how hospitality works. No one teaches you the difference between an importer, a distributor, a wholesaler. And a marketing company. No one teaches you the difference there. As far as you're concerned, they're all trying to take something from you. And and so I turn up and they'd be like, No, we only buy through this company. I'm like, great, they stock every product that we that we look after. And they were like, Well, why are you here then? Do you work for them? I'm like, No, that's not how the industry works. But how do I explain to someone who's been in the industry ten years that they don't have a full active understanding? And I really struggled with stuff like that. And it um whilst the company I worked for I did like and they didn't want me to leave and they tried to change the position as best for me to suit their needs and what I wanted. Um, just wasn't right. So I literally woke up one morning, was in tears, and conveniently enough, the next week was my like yearly review that was coming up. And bless them, the company was like, hey, we're going to give you a pay rise, want to put this in, want to put that in. And I was just like, cool, don't worry about it. I'm going to hand my notice in now. And <laughs> explain my reasons. And, you know, like I said, that. I didn't enjoy what they had and there wasn't a way that they could change it enough for me. And I still worked with them on and off and done bits for them since. And every two years they go away to France to a big competition thing and 
because I was one of the people that initially won it before I worked with the company. I still go away with them on that trip every couple of years. Well, hopefully every couple of years. I don't know when they're going <laughs> to stop inviting me. Um, but, you know, so I still work with them today. But, yeah, that was kind of the, the day that I kind of went. It wasn't more so I want to do my own thing. It was more of I just can't keep doing this. And I actually, so actually, we mentioned Tommy Matthews earlier. So I actually, that evening, messaged Tommy and was like, any chance you're free? And he's like, I'm working, but I can, I can make some time for you. Yeah, so... Went there and I just was like, I can't do it, man. I don't, I don't know what to do. I was like, I hate, I hate my job. I was like, I want my own place. I don't want to work under somebody else telling me how to do my life, to do my job. So, Tommy, lucky enough, you know, had the right kind of answer at the time to be like, well, why don't you do your own thing? And I was like, well, you know, I don't have money. You know, and he was like, how much do you have? And a couple of thousand pound. And I was like. We went through it and figured out, you know, was was feasible and possible. You know, he knew somebody who was looking, had a space who wanted to put something in it, and I had time and effort and a little bit of money to put into it. So that's when they put me in touch with the Thousand Trades who um, had a spare space upstairs, and Thousand Trades were just like, yeah, right, go on. If you want to, we get the room for you. We've got a room if you want to put a bar in there and some seating, them. we'll take a cut and that'll pay your rent kind of thing. And that's what we did. That was it. That was as simple as that. I lent. I actually ended up having no money of my own. Um, I ended up spending. I ended up borrowing one thousand eight hundred pounds off my dad, and that was what paid for all of the wood for me and him to build the benches, the bar top, a fake wall, you know, some shelving. All of the alcohol that I had was from my personal collection, because being in this industry over years and years, you gain, you know, you get gifted presents. You help somebody out. They give you a bottle. Yeah. You do a competition. There's some some stock left over and whatnot. So, I'm not a huge drinker. Like I enjoy a drink, but I don't drink to excess regularly, and I never really drink alone or at home. And that's just personal choice. Like now, now I'm a I'm a little bit older and a bit more stressed out. I will have more <laughs> in front of the telly than what I used to. But growing up, like in my early twenties, I definitely wouldn't have drank at home really unless I had a reason to. And you know, I'm not going to drink a bottle of creme de cassis at home some people will <laughs> some people will but i'll just go and buy a pack of beer and have them whereas you know yeah. so i had this massive collection and we're talking huge i'd never threw everything away occasionally would give stuff away but not a lot and like i'd always buy when you're doing competitions and entering you go and buy a full bottle of what you needed and i'd use five six shots at most and then it would go into the collection and like i said i don't drink at home so i've got all this stuff just building and building and building to the point where I had a full bar's worth of alcohol pretty much that was the key that I think made it possible for me to open really if I'd had to pay for booze like anyone else during that opening weekend I look I remember in the opening day my mum was coming and I texted her well I called her and was like oh mum any chance on your way into uh, the, the, the the preview night you could bring some cranberry um, orange and pineapple juice I haven't had time to go to Tesco absolute lie I had no money left <laughs> And I needed juices to make some of the drinks. And I thought, oh, my mom, my mom will definitely cut out. I did, had I said, mom, can I borrow a hundred pounds? She'd have made my dad do it. Like they would have, they would have lent me it, yeah. but I just couldn't face it. I'd already, I've never really asked for money in my life off them. And that was the one time that I had. And whilst 1,800 pound is a lot of money to some people, you know, other people have spent more of that on a fucking city. So like, you know, to open a business, it isn't a lot of money, but to borrow off you, my mum and dad, I thought it was a huge amount, especially as a 25-year-old. That mm. Kind of that money was un, unthinkable at the time. To look back and think, Jesus Christ, we opened 
a bar on 1800 quid is mental but i mean we begged and borrowed and didn't steal but basically felt like we were um you know we took old pallets to make the benches out of we i got a sink unit from a friend i got a fridge from a pub which was being redone the old owners were just chucking everything away so they gave me a big stainless steel unit and a, a fridge which i've still got the fridge to this day upstairs it's, it's a, cool. it will never die but you know we begged borrowed and stilled and that's kind of how that bar opened yeah literally i remember every week i was doing the stock basically the menu was changing daily because whilst i had lots of booze i didn't have six bottles of vodka i had one bottle of Smirnoff, <laughs> a third of a bottle of Grey Goose, you know, a, a large bottle of Belvedere or whatever it was like. So every day I was reprinting the menu from my home printer because I didn't have anything else with new drinks that I was developing that morning with what stock I had. So I'd literally have some of them. I'd only have six of because that was all that one of the ingredients was going to run out. So I'd do what I could to... You know, if two ingredients were similar, I'd blend them and then make the drink and whatever I could do to kind of prolong the menu's length. But literally for the first month, I think the menu changed every day we were open. <laughs> and I remember at the end of the week being like, right, I've got £300 to spend on alcohol now. What the fuck is the most important thing I can buy that will last the longest kind of thing? So started buying, you know, I had hundreds and hundreds of bitters and stuff that I collected over time. So all that stuff was good. So it was like, right... This week I'm buying two bottles of vodka with the hopes that those drinks do okay. And that means I've got, I figured it all out. I was like, I've got just enough to make 20 of them. So I need to push that drink because everything else I've got four of. And I just <laughs> kept doing that and kept working. And luckily customers were great. People were so understanding. Because I mean, whilst I wasn't telling everyone the real logistics of the drink, I was one serving a table and be like, three of them would order a drink. And I was thinking, oh, I've only got four and the six of you. So if two more people want it, that is out. And you know, it was touch and go for a lot, but like, you know, what business isn't, but I suppose we were just in much harder constraint. I once did a talk in uh, in Edinburgh um, and I was I was listening to the talk, not, not, not talking in it. Um, and it was called Balling on a Budget. And one of the guys told me he only had half a million pounds to open a bar in Paris. And I was like, go fuck yourself, <laughs> man. Half a million is all you had. I'm like, I don't care where you are, man doesn't matter how... Yeah, like, that's enough. So I could only afford a custom marble top. Oh. <laughs> so I, had one, I had to ask my mum to bring cranberry juice in so I could make a cosmopolitan. <laughs> like, and I was just like, the world difference is the thing. And anyway, so that's how it happened. And my immediate focus was paying my dad back. So whilst I was quite lucky at the time, like I said, I was still... Um, I was working a couple of like... I wouldn't say consultancy, but it was more like odd jobs here and there for other people that was kind of just paying my way and my partner at the time had been really understanding you know I said to her look I may not be able to pay any rent she could afford it at the time so that was quite lucky that she was also willing to allow me to take that big risk and I didn't pay myself for three four months and then I eventually started paying myself like 300 pounds a month just to be able to give her something and then eventually worked my way up to a 12 grand a year salary which i was on for two years um, yeah like anyone anyone who's owns their own business will know exactly why it was about to, i think it was 11 grand at the time because that was the tax, tax. threshold yeah. which so many people start paying themselves on but it took time to get there and you know i was lucky that i had people around me that you know my ex-partner was like look if you can't make anyone at all often and she then also ended up coming in on her days off to work 
because if somebody couldn't be there, it meant, well, I'd rather her be there because I don't have to pay her. So, you know, <laughs> looking back, whilst whilst we're not together anymore, there was, there was some upsides to the relationship. It's fair to say you had a bit of trouble working for people mm. in every role that you had on this yeah. journey to there. So now you've got Vanguard and your your own boss. So you got to do everything your own way and everything was great and everything was successful and you made loads of money. Yeah, yeah, that's the end. Is that how it yeah, went? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Dude, what was your favourite failure, man? Uh, um, what went wrong and you thought, fucking, uh, this could be it. But then now you look back and think, I'm glad I went through that then because now um, it's somewhere else. And- I wouldn't say that... I That still happens now. There are still things that happen now where I'm like... That was a mess up, you know. What well, do you know? The one thing I've noticed is is why big companies spend big money on certain stuff, ice machines. Mm. Yeah, I must have spent in the past couple of years so much money on secondhand ice machines because I never wanted to take the dive into buying a brand new, good one that had a warranty. <laughs> the, uh, the, that you know, I just wouldn't spend it. And there's looking times. And my my business partner. So I've got a business partner who's been my best friend. I, I say business partner. For the first two years, he was my best mate who did the accounts because he's a trained accountant. And his words were, this business is never going to make money. I'm just doing it to support you. Is genuinely what he said to me. Now, that's different. Now, I think he's glad that he got involved. But it was true at the time. Like, he only came on board because I was like, I don't fucking know how to do accounts. And I had a best mate who was a trained accountant. Although, funny enough, He's a trained accountant, but he's never done bookkeeping. So he was like, oh, we need to get a bookkeeper. Though. And I'm like, no, you're an accountant. That's, <laughs> that's your job. So he had to learn that as well. So he he always says like sometimes spending a little bit more saves you a lot. Yeah. And I've never really wrung that any truer because the amount of money I have spent on crap that I really thought I needed or was good or wanted that has just proven to be a waste of time. And it still happens now. Sometimes I'm a lot better at picking those times and moments, but... Sometimes I'm, oh, I just wish that I'd fucking spent a little bit more. Even this week, I bought a brand new dehydrator from a company that I know provides shite products. Six weeks later, it had broken. So this week, I've had to buy a brand new dehydrator and spend more than I originally spent on the brand that I should have got then. Had I done that, I'd be 200 and something quid in, pro- in, in pocket than now. So I'm still struggling with that myself. I just I know they're crap, and I've now said I'll never do it again, but I guarantee in six weeks I'll buy it table off them or something yeah i'll have three legs but yeah so i don't trying to think of something in particular that was like a big fair i think um i wouldn't say there was like a decision that i made that was a big failure there was lots of decisions that i made that became a fair but i think the one thing that really sticks out was whilst i'm very good at making drinks and you know somewhat to managing people and the kind of the bar side of it it was more just realizing like business is not about drinks it's not about the, you know, to an extent, yes, the product screams volumes, but if there's so much more into it, marketing, I didn't have a clue, man. And I never thought I gave a shit. I was like, oh, I don't need to do any of that. Like, you know, you, you, I didn't know what a press release was. Didn't know how to write one. Like I said, I'm not a very academic person. So that has been the biggest curve for me was learning how to market, what people want to see, what people care about. And like now here, so since opening the Pineapple Club, I have those kind of big mottos that people will forgive a bad drink, but they'll never forgive bad service. Mm. And that's something that I don't know if I heard that of someone else. It's probably a really famous quote that I'm ripping off as my own. I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember, remember where I heard that or learned that or if I dreamt it up one night. But um, that was something I never used to understand. I was just like, no, good drinks will bring people in because you, you pay nine quid for a good cocktail. That's what you come for. And actually, it's just the opposite, man. 
people like a nice setting and a nice drink, but they want to have fun with who they're with. It's very rare that, you, obviously, there are people that do out there specifically, you know, one of my best friends, um, he just wouldn't leave the bar. He used to come on his own, sit at the bar top, and he would literally not leave until I said, we're closed now, you need to leave. And he he specifically come for good drinks. But 99% of people that came used to come because they were having a catch-up with their friend or, you know, on a first date or whatever it was. And I think it took me a long time to really realise that, that the product is only one small portion of the puzzle. It's not the be-all and end-all. And I think that took me a long time to realise marketing, customer service, nice finishing touches. I never used to put any nice finishing touches into the venue because I was like, who gives a shit? I don't care. Who cares if there's flowers there? Who cares if there's candle on the windowsill? And like, it took me a while at the Vanguard to slowly introduce them and realise, and money somewhat played an aspect. I think if I'd had thousands, thousands of pounds at the beginning, yeah, I probably would have bought more candle holders and cushions and pillows and stuff, but I never cared. So I think it took a while for me to realise that those things do matter and that there's more than just the product. Well, that's really kicked in at Pineapple Club <laughs> because that's like all like, it's beautiful, it's social media friendly, it's yeah. stunning place. So I mean, good. the Pineapple Club was a, I don't remember when we decided to do that. So no. what what happened is, I don't know how true flush should be here, but the, the previous, the Vanguard was worked on a, on a um, profit share. So the landlord, the, the pub below me had a spare room for those who don't know and never been. The landlord was a pub they had on their, in their kind of, um, their attic space essentially had a, they had a staircase put in so they could use it for customers and they would take a portion of my turnover. So every week I'd send them my reports and they would take a portion of what we had made. And they, they used to take 25%. So for every 10 pounds, they took two pound 50. And then from my money and profit as a company, there was that and so on. So it, it really ate into everything. You know, it was 25% of your, of the turnover, not profit. Mm. So it made it really hard. And, you know, they wanted to put in a flat rate and they wanted to put in the rate that was equivalent to the rent for the entire building, um, which they, I don't think they realized I had figured out quite easily because I was like, that's a very specific figure. And then instantly without any issues realized ah oh, that's the rent they pay so and one minute they tried to shaft me but two they were just trying to secure their own business by you know charging me what they thought i could afford and i was like that's ridiculous if you're going to charge me full full rent i'm just going to go and get my own place when i can have my own decisions and i can have a sign outside which is lit up rather than being under yours and you know I kind of don't have all the restrictions that you put on. So started having a look. Obviously, we'd had some trading history. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to kind of get our foot in the door. And some people had heard of the bar. The estate agent knew who we were and had been and liked what we did. So he was more inquired to like push us to good places. And I, think, I can't remember how we found the guy that we used, but I don't know if it was a friend of a friend recommended them or what. And then we ended up finding the pineapple of space and... Um, I instantly saw the space and fell in love with what it was and what I thought it could be, but it was like, because oh, originally the plan was just to move the Vanguard. It was just to move that bar, city center. We were going to get a loan, you know, do do it a bit nicer, do kind of what we would have liked to have done with it and really double down on what had worked there and make it work. And I saw the space and I was like, there is no way that the concept I have is going to fill a space this size. Yeah. And my business partner found the space, you know, 
the financials of what we thought with the amount of people you can fit in and the t the profits were like this this can work this space this space is great like because of the way that the the rents of feet like worked and where we are it's like this is it's a good deal really mm -hmm. um there are issues like you know when you guys walk in you walk into a small space and then it's a huge space that's hidden and I was like, wow, I've just had a bar that was up two flights of stairs in somebody else's pub with a tiny little <laughs> sign. I was like, I reckon I can get away with this. Yeah. I was like, but we knew, you know, the pandemic hadn't quite hit in at this point. So this happened in, uh, we started looking in October, November 2019. So just shy of COVID. And then, so we'd already, the, mo the wheels were in motion for the idea of us leaving uh, the Vanguard behind. But the plan was to get it going, you know, get close, close one and then move to the other. The idea was going to be more of a relocation rather than a, a new bar. And then once we found this, we both said, you know, we were, I was leaning on what I know works and has worked in the bars that I know are busy and big in other cities and what we have in this um, city that is, is good. And I just started, we were like, right, it needs to be Instagrammable because unfortunately that is what's making bar successful. It needs to be a destination. There's a couple of ways you can make a destination by having an amazing product typically you know, the kind of destinations you get are Michelin-style restaurants in the middle of Botfolk Nowhere or country pubs. This is neither. And I'm not a Michelin-style chef, so I ain't got that. Mm. So the the idea was like, well, what can I do? I was like, well, we can make it pretty and I can do good drinks. So that was kind of where that went. And then everything else kind of fell into place. Maze the designer. Um, when I used to work for Harvey Nichols, I was a bar manager of there when they opened in the, the mailbox. Maisie was worked in their designs department, so I'd seen since then she'd grown a massive Instagram following, did like loads of home decor stuff, and I was like, you know, so I just gave her a message and was like, any chance you want to design a bar? She was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, let's meet, met her for a coffee, showed her the venue, showed her what I thought, and she was like, yeah, I can do this, and went from then, you know, it was her first big project, so she gave us a much cheaper deal than what she is now, and yeah, yeah we, we just Maisie, didn't we? It wasn't Zoe told us to Yeah, Maisie. Zoe got answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so Maisie, Maisie's fantastic. Like, she just understands what what we had in mind and where we wanted to go. And, you know, there was a couple of things that, you know, she also understood budgets and that we aren't a massive company with tons of money. Um, luckily for us, the, the COVID loans and that kind of all fell in, so it kind of became a bit less, you know, a bit more risk-free than it was going to be beforehand. And... Um, but then also we were signed in the middle of a pandemic. So mm. that, that kind of has and still is playing a, a huge lag on where we should be and want to be. So, yeah, so that's kind of how we kind of got to the Pineapple Club's ideas. It's just we knew we had a big venue or big-ish venue that needed to turn people. And we're like, well, what's the one way with the skills that we have we can get people to turn up? And that's by making, you know, look at the alchemist and the botanist. Like the idea was these flamboyant cocktails. Like, well, we can do that, but it needs to be more than that now. And yeah, they Instagram actually have to taste good as well. Well, yeah, but also Instagrammable venues are one of the reasons that people are drawn to them. And so Maisie was said, look, look, it needs to be pretty. It needs to be something that people are going to want to take a photo in. And I, th I think she nailed that for the budgets and the stuff that we had at the time. I think she really nailed it. And then the quality had to match the customer's expectation. But like I said earlier, like a lot of what we do is providing the atmosphere and the location for them to have a good time in rather than bringing them in because they've heard we do amazing cocktails 
I think it's now a bit of both as people are realizing there's more to us than just a pretty venue, um, such as like the top 50 list that we were in and stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. That's a big list to get on because not many places in Birmingham got on it. No, so two in Birmingham that got onto the list and another one that kind of got like a special kind of um, newcomer nomination award. award. That yeah. was your old? Yeah, so that was the old location. Yeah. <laughs> weird. So, um, so I think that there's there's two elements of the way people can look at a bar like this. They can see a pretty bar and just they just naturally assume that everything else is shite. Because there are, not to name names, a lot of chains that are purely you know, style over substance. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, being you know in cocktails for almost 15 years, like I obviously wanted to make sure the product stood up to the, lo- the venue. Because like I said, previously to this, it had always been product first, everything else second. Mm-hmm. And this time around, I was just like, I don't think I had finally come to terms with that wasn't right, and it needed to be everything else first, and the product had to match that, not the other way around. And I think that you know a lot of these chains they struggle because you know there's 60 sites, and how do you make it consistent and stuff like that? So there's, they have those issues, whereas we don't. I can make it consistent because I've only got 16 members, like bartenders. So to make that happened the way that I thought it should. Um, I think we, we it's easier to be a smaller team. And, sorry, one of the elephants has come down the stairs. Um, so yeah, so I think it, you know, those, the way that we kind of went about this was to give people a reason to come, which was, you know, the prettiness, the Instagram. And then we wanted to make sure that product stood out. And I think that's partly why we've become so busy. And um, is because whilst we've got that drag to pull people in, what we offer then is good. You know, it's price competitive to everywhere else in the city centre. By price competitive, I mean, we're generally cheaper. Um, like, we pour good stuff. We have knowledgeable team members. Like, you know, me and the general manager and the bar manager, there's always one of us here. So there's always somebody in control of what it is. It's not run by duty managers and, you know, supervisors and stuff like that. Like, mm. who are on, you know, cheap labour kind of stuff. It's run by the people who... Sh- our experience and should be doing it um so i think that kind of stood out i mean a lot of it as well is also i think having worked in this industry for so long and met so many people there is a lot of who you know not what you know and that is definitely true so i think that a lot of where birmingham is not saying that it's all accredited to me but me and other people have built birmingham to the point where now these kind of awards are looking at birmingham whereas typically five years ago there wasn't a chance they were looking at birmingham you yeah. know with the exception of a few awards in a few places, you know, since the Jekyll and Hyde won best gin menu or whatever, there hasn't really been much offered to the city. Um, and I think that, you know, the work that many of us have pulled together over time to push Birmingham has ended up being that now the top 50 came to Birmingham for the first time. They came to here to look around. Like last time they did a list, um, there was another venue on it from Birmingham and which is now closed. Um, but they didn't come. They only looked online. Whereas this time they decided they were going to spend their time, money and resources to visit the city and visit those bars. And I think that shows that people are starting to take Birmingham as a drink scene more seriously. Now I think the drink scene needs to make sure that we're on our game to do that. You had 40 St. Paul's won awards as well. Yeah, so 40 is obviously Gym, probably yeah. the most awarded. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Maybe maybe second, maybe to the Edge Baston that was. Um but yeah, Forties is probably the most award-winning bar That's that we've still, had. Uh, it's still going good. It's a nice Did, bar. Man. Yeah, it's nice. 
Oh, okay, well. Did you um, did they introduce themselves? Or was it like Michelin where they just don't they look kids? Uh, no, 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 not, not as them. So, well, <laughs> what they actually did. So, I, I know basically there's someone they the way that a lot of these awards is they reached out to either someone or a couple people. I know one uh, in the city they reach out to and they're like, look, you. You know, it could be a blogger, a writer, someone that they've got an online presence that seems to know what they're on about. And they did pick one that I think does know what they're talking about. Um, and they just said, "Where should we? where's good? And that person recommended the three people who won awards, plus some others. Um, and then they messaged us and said, look, we're going to come in. We want to do some filming, have a chat with you, see what you're about. And obviously we were like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's take it seriously. But... Also, you know, we have also had the person who runs the the World Top 50 message us, booked the table, never turned up. Yeah. I think awards are nice, but you got to just judge it by your customers. I mean, yeah, they come back week after week, and that's where you got to go. By. Yeah, like, I think, like, you know, I, I never really, for a while, understood. I still don't understand people who sponsor awards. You know, when you go to an awards ceremony, yeah, it's sponsored they, by... Know, yeah, I can't quite figure that out, because, like, it's, like, I think... Again, I'm not a marketing expert, and everything I've learned and what I understand of marketing is through trial and error that we've done, and like so half of it is just having something to say. Mm-hmm. You know, you can open a great bar, but if it's a great bar that's the first one to do something, all of a sudden it's perceived as better or different and more interesting, so it gets more, you know, gets more attention. And I think that like awards, they just kind of give that. They like, oh, somebody said they're good. So it kind of just, it does help with consumers. Like, would you rather go to a random bar you've never heard of or a random bar you've never heard of that's won five, six awards locally? It just kind of makes you feel like, all oh, right, I'm getting mm. value from money year or they're good at what they do. Um, and it does go, you know, like we haven't particularly shouted tons about it. Um, and yet customers are coming in and saying, congratulations. And you guys do really well. Somebody said that we should be higher. Like, and I'm sure there's lots of people that think we should be lower. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I think the right there is credit to me. It's never been never been something that we've sought after. Like I think you know, most of the top Michelin chefs, I don't think they said I want to, I want to make this restaurant three stars. They said I want to make this the best I can be, mm. and three stars came. You know, look at Harpon Kitchen. I don't think, um, don't think they've ever sat there. Jamie's ever sat there and said I want a star. He did on this podcast. He did. He did. Oh, did he? <laughs> did he? Oh. You couldn't have picked But that was the else. first time he said it. You know, I really, no one else so, has ever said when it. When I worked with him, he was abdomen like, he's always, I oh, just, you know, we do what we do and if we get one, we get one. Okay, maybe his tone's changed. They had good cocktails there though. You I do like the cocktails. Yeah, so I worked, I, I worked there for a little bit with them. They're a really, really good team. I think um, they've got a nice like philosophy on how they, they run it and, you know, it's, Again, it's it seems to be that service as well. Like you know, they they care about front house. You know, you can go to some Michelin places and it can feel a bit cold or a little bit like classical Michelin. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And you, whereas Harbon Kitchen, you do feel like Jamie gives a shit about you and yeah. the yeah. team gives a it's shit. Nice vibe. I like being able to turn up as I'm turned up today as well. Yeah, like, I don't yeah, like yeah, dressing yeah. up. That pisses me off. If if I have to dress up somewhere, that I don't really want to go there. That that being said, though, the first time I went to Harborn Kitchen, I was in jogging bottoms and jeans and a hoodie <laughs> because I'd gone with a friend who said, "Oh, there's a new place open. I've heard they do really good burgers." And he was like, "It's called Harborn <laughs> Kitchen." And I was like, "Oh, is that the place in the butchers?" Thinking butcher social. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, I think that's the one." Turned up to Harborn Kitchen had a tasting menu for whatever cost it was on like a Thursday night. 
in jogging bottoms and a hoodie. Never felt like such a big bellend. Like <laughs> no one said a thing. No one thought anything of it. We we had the wine flight and everything. I remember turning to my mate going, you said we're going for fucking burgers. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I thought they did burgers. He's like, but now I realise, yeah. Like, but he was the one that egged this whole thing on. I was like, he sat down and we're like, we'll take the tasting menu, please, with pairings. And I was like, dude. Better be a burger on this fucker. Yeah, I thought we were going for a burger. And like, whilst I had a great time, it was just a bit of a shocking experience at the time. I think it was like the third time I'd been on, I'd had a pairing menu as well. And it was just like, Entire time, I was like, oh, should I take my hoodie off? I was like, I don't know what T-shirt I'm wearing. I couldn't, I might have sweats down. I don't know. Like, I was like, I was not prepared for this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, here we are. So this might be a crazy question as you've only just opened this new bar, but have you got anything in the future? Um, I mean, yeah, like I'm, we're, there's never been a time that we haven't been looking at other things. Mm. Whether or not these things happen, like the Pineapple Club happened because we viewed, you know, five or six places and this was the only one I got a real good feeling for and we thought it could work, you know. We had a landlord recently message us and say, hey, we like what you do. We've got a space nearby. Do you want to look at it? We looked at it. It's viable. And then the conversation changed slightly and we were like, actually, no, this doesn't fit what we want anymore. So I don't think, whilst we're not looking massively to expand, because we're still expanding here. Um, when we opened, we had six staff members. Now we've got 18 like and that's still there's still plenty for us to grow there's still daytime trade that's not there because of you know the the office work has not been around there's still evenings we want to get busy there's still offers and things we want to try and implement they're still down here so like whilst no right now there's nothing on the cards it only takes one little thing for somebody to say oh i've got a space you want to look at it and me go i can make some money before we do it um (laughs) Because I'll never let, like, I know there are some people in business who have a 10-year plan, and I don't. And I have a friend who has a 10-year plan, and I just disagree with the whole concept of that. Like, how do you know where you're going to be in 10 years? Mm -hmm. What do you do for the past two years? Do you not include them in your plan, or do you say you're behind, or do you say you're where you should have been two years ago? Like, what? how do you judge this, and, you know, how do you be reactive? Like, um, I think part of business is about being reactive. Like, you know, there are lots of people in businesses who things change around them they don't change so i don't know where we're going to be in two years i don't know if this bar's going to still be it could fail like it could be that this was the best thing we ever did and we've sold it and moved on to bigger and better things or all the opposite we're clinging on to something that's not working i don't know like but i think it's i think you, i'll always try to be reactive with what's going on around us and if someone gives us enough and like i said you know for instance this year at christmas we did the uh, independent market festival and it was a massive risk you know it cost a lot of money to be in and it was a lot like a lot of risk that we took on board to for an independent and whilst we made some money it definitely didn't make the money it should have and a lot of that was pandemic and a lot of that was you know but we tried it and now we know next year when we do it we can we we know we'll make money from it because it can't really get worse than it did this year so we'll always trial and react to stuff around us whether that means we'll get somewhere with it i don't know but like so i wouldn't say there's nothing in the works now but it doesn't mean that in three days that i could be telling you something different i could be like (laughs) actually a guy come in and he owns an office block and he wants me to put in a bar in the top floor and all of a sudden i'm opening a new venue just because (laughs) that you know what i mean like if the opportunity is there i 
will look take it seriously and, and try and figure it out I'm not going to say no to something because it doesn't fit into a arbitrary plan that I don't have any more plans to make your own spirits because we had the very limited edition BHX gin town and the Babat town <laughs> so so yes that was kind of a lockdown so we've I don't know how much you guys know so we when we had the Vanguard, that was a cocktail bar and meadery for the people who don't know, and meadery meaning the alcohol made out of honey. Mm. Um, that was something I fell into. It was never a plan. The real reason that happened was because when I was working for the um, with the pub was the landlord, part of their requirements was you can't sell beer and wine because they're a natural beer and craft, they're a natural wine and craft beer um, pub. And I was like, how the fuck do you open a bar that doesn't sell beer and wine? Because no matter, <laughs> yes, we're a cocktail bar, but it's always one person in the room that's going to want a beer. And if you say no to that one person, you alienate them. And you're never going to go out with your mates and then sit there and be like, oh, there's nothing I can drink. So you're going to leave. And that that did happen multiple times. So the concept was, what can I put in place so that I have a... Because re- I don't want to throw my landlord and business you know, associates under a bus, essentially, mm. by saying, oh, I'd like to, but they won't allow me. And they didn't want to allow it because they were trying to protect their own assets. Mm-hmm. So... I was like, what can I do to negate this? And that was putting in mead because mead has things that are like wine and like beer. And I thought at least then I've got something to say to customers who want to be and say, we don't have that because we focus on this. And I honestly thought it'd last a couple of weeks, disappear. And they would go, oh yeah, you're not stealing our clients. Of course you can have a bottle of prone in the fridge. Um, And it didn't, the mead went really, really well. And I think that's partly because if I'm going to do something, I want to do it right. Mm. And so I really got into it and made sure that what we were offering was right. And like I said, I genuinely thought, I remember the first time I had a, a new manager start, this the same manager at the time, he wasn't really a manager when he started, but he became one later on. Um, he started and I think in his first shift, he made like four cocktails and he was like, is, it, is this it? Mead? And I was like, yeah, I told you like, this is a, this is a thing. <laughs> and he was like, I know, but you know, when someone tells you something, like someone says, oh, I'll play piano. You don't expect them to be like one of the best piano players in the world. And I was like, that's the scenario. I was like, told you we sell mead, but he didn't believe that 99% of what we sold was mead. And um, he actually managed to kind of balance it out with the cocktails by putting in a mead cocktail menu and the people who were coming for the mead could then choose both. And so I hadn't really thought of that at the time. I don't know why. Um, Seems really simple looking back, but here we are. Um, So yeah, whilst we were there anyway, we launched our own mead. That's where this was all going. We launched our own mead. Um, it was produced by someone else to a recipe that we developed with them. They were the production site. And then we kind of owned up and sold the brand and made that. Um, and during lockdown, we decided when we opened the Pineapple Club that whilst I enjoyed mead and had a history in it, no one else in this company did. You know, the Vanguard was gone. The person who had worked, all the people who had worked with me at the Vanguard had moved on and out of the industry and whatnot. So that kind of left me with a brand that no one gives a shit about other than me and me with no time to really focus on it. So we actively decided, right, we're not going to sell out with what we've got left and then we're not going to produce any more and we're done. And then all the team were like, oh, but it's a shame to, you've got a whole company set up to produce stuff. And I was like, yeah, but I, because we were having that made by someone else, I was like, we don't have control of the product. I didn't like that factor. I wanted to be able to control it internally and have that, um, creative input into something because if we wanted to make an adaption to that recipe that was a six months long process with this company and labs and flavor compounds and all this stuff that i just i was like no just put some rosemary in it 
That's all I want. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so we decided to just on the cuff. I'd had a couple of drinks. It was lockdown. We're all bored, um, and I bought a still. I was like, let's let's make some gin. It's boring. Let's we're all bored. Let's make some gin. So I bought a still. Just honestly off the cuff. Somebody said that'd be cool, and I was like, oh cool. And then like ten minutes later, I was like, drunk. I was like, I just bought a still. They're like, what? And I was like, just off Amazon. And it's like fifteen liter. No, not massive, but way bigger than what you'd have for a home still. Oh, I just bought them. It sounds like you can get them on Amazon. <laughs> so I bought one. And like I said, I'd had a few. And um, so then we were like, right, we've got this still. And I, then the businessman in me kicked out. I was like, oh, I've just spent 400 quid on a still, which isn't a lot of money, but we need to make 400 quid back because otherwise I've just wasted 400 quid. And eventually my business partner is going to see the accounts and go, what the fuck are you just buying random shit for? <laughs> like, So that's where the first run of BHX Gin came in. So we we worked with a producer who's been producing because you can't just pick up a still and go like there is a certain level of skill that required for it so we worked with dr emers who owns the west midlands gin distillery uh or west midlands distillery anyway um he helped finalize a recipe we did some work he helped produce some of it and then we finished it in-house with our still because our stills were too small to do the run size that we needed um so we we launched bhx gin just as a one-off and we had no idea how it's going to go it sold out pretty quickly um and then we reopened in May and we just got far too busy to like in this time this was still in lockdown we had plenty of time and we had a day to fill bottle do whatever we had loads of time because all of us were just bored so then when we reopened it kind of went quiet for a long time because it was just too busy and then I eventually was like look we've still got this here like we need to do something and then Amy about Town was in and we were just chatting and she was like oh because I helped like she works on our social media with us and we were helping her kind of figure out where she's going to go and what she's going to do and um, she's got some really cool stuff planned for that brand that she's going to create kind of thing um, and I just said like oh why don't you like so I can make this can you if you can sell it and it just it sounded really simple at the time it's just like you've got a massive audience that want to buy stuff from you and I've got the ability to make a product but no time to do the marketing I was like it just makes sense to do a collaboration and not the kind of collaboration that social media influencers normally do where it's like, do you want to collab and yeah. they take a free meal and post about it? Yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, whereas a genuine business partnership where she branded it, she sold it to her customers and we did the the, the labor stuff of it because that's what is easy for us. Yeah. And um, it worked really well. So yes, there's a lot more to come. So right now we've got the BHX gin part of it, which uh, we've got five gin liqueurs and we do a, a bottomless brunch gin thing here because that works for our clientele. At one point, we were in the we were in the midst of an absinthe. We were making out. We were also trying a, um, a komi soshu, which is like a Japanese um, distilled rice alcohol. We were doing our own version of that. Um, some of them got canned pretty early on because we made them. It's delicious. We did the pricing on it. Realized it was just horrendously. One product was going to be two hundred quid a bottle, wow. just to do what we wanted, and we were like, "Yes, yeah, probably only <laughs> yeah. three people in the world who may buy this, so yeah. we're not going to do it." Um, because it was just silly, like some some of the stuff we've tried. But um, part of me stepping away, so I've now stepped away from making drinks permanently, and that's partly to focus on BHX Labs, which is the name of the other company. Um, the plans to do some more gins. We're going to be hopefully working with other people. We're looking at doing some gins with local theatres to kind of really shout about Birmingham's quality and stuff like that. Um, and then we're just going to look at other stuff like vermouth, absinthe kind of more products that require more kind of like time and thought and effort than gin. Um, gin was just kind of the, 
the easy entry level thing that we wanted to have a go at to kind of figure out if it can make some money and if we can create a brand. Um, so yeah, the plans, like there's not really one specific idea for that company. It's quite hard to say like, this is what we're going to do. Um, because what I want to do is get my team more involved in that creative process because I don't have, whilst running here, running down here as well, the, the Shibuya Underground and the Pineapple Club and focusing on some other projects that we're hopefully working on alongside that, like I said, nothing's solid yet, but we're always looking at options. The idea is to create things that we think are cool and we think people may want and then like one of the bartenders really wanted to do an absinthe so we had it all kind of in the in the process of being developed and then they decided they got an opportunity to move to dubai so they've moved and that idea moved with them because no one else cared to 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 really go through it so it will chop and change over time as long as the products we think are good are relevant and are nice then we'll we'll look at producing them and, and making a, something of them but there's not really right now one specific idea that we're going to go with i think it's still in its it's not in its infancy there just hasn't been the time to focus really on what it's going to be but we've got the facilities and the production stuff and licenses to distill and rectify and label and duty stamp and all that we just haven't figured out what we're producing yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's exciting to have on the side though anyway yeah, yeah, yeah and i think that's kind of like it gives us a lot of benefit like mm. you know if the pandemic happened again we've got an instant outlet to produce stuff that people can buy for home Smart. we've also got the ability to distill and rectify stuff for you know in-house you know which you can do with with certain licenses but like if we want to make a uh seaweed and yuzu distillate to use in a drink down here we can i've got a still we've got a couple of different stills now as well size wise um so we can instantly kind of react as well so kind of for us it's kind of not a safety thing but it is a bit of a safety mechanism that we have there we know we have it and we can use it when we need it it's, it's the current plan but long term there will be things put in place to either produce a permanent line product that we push out nationally or what but there are ideas and we've, we've got um plans at the moment for a vermouth company um to come out of that but that's quite a far while off we've got the trademarks and stuff like that we want to do but the development process is going to take you know six months to a year before i think we're going to be really happy with a range of products let alone one um before that'll actually go anywhere and in that time god knows what's going to happen <laughs> yeah, yeah. can predict the nap you got your questions? Yeah, I hope you're ready for this. Yeah. It's quick fire questions. Very little to do with what you actually do. <laughs> just personal questions. Just a bit of fun at the end of the podcast, yeah. isn't it? So what's your favourite TV show? TV show. Currently always Sunny in Philadelphia, but Rick and Morty is also up there. Yeah, I love Rick and And I think one that I really like that I've just restarted watching, Last Kingdom, because they've just brought out no series. It's really mm, good. Cool. What's your favourite movie? Um... pass okay <laughs> your favorite band or artist um was a huge fan of avicii for a very long time swedish house mafia i think this is just because that's what i used to listen to at uni yeah. um favorite song specifically though is oh mate why has it gone out of my head um the way you uh you make me feel by daryl and hall no john notes yeah 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 oh, you can have that What's your favourite 
And this is specific to the bulge favorite spirit. Uh, so I think I would have gone probably rum initially and oh, like when I was younger, but I think over time that's changed. And now, right, right now, if I was to pick something to drink and enjoy spirit wise, would be soshu, which is a Japanese thing that we're going to be specializing on downstairs. Mm, cool. Uh, what's your favorite big fast food chain? I'm going to have to go McDonald's. Just... No, no, no. Favorite. The one I visit more is probably McDonald's. Favorite is definitely KFC. Yep. Nice. Uh, what's your favorite takeaway? Uh, Chinese. That's probably the only one I didn't have to think about. <laughs> See the one over again. What's the best cocktail destination in the world that you've been to? Um, specifically for cocktails in the world, Barcelona, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. Whilst there's not tons of good cocktail bars, some of the ones that are there are the best in the world, but their drinking culture in general there is really good. Mm-hmm. That's us. That's us. Thank you very much. No, you're welcome. Yeah, really appreciate your time, Sam, and uh, love going through your story. Like, it's massive, man. Probably could have just done a part two where we just chatted about <laughs> other stuff. <like. laughs> yeah, really grateful to have you on, man. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah, thank you for having me. Cheers, Sam.